Dear Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, today we officially begin our exploration of the book of Exodus, the second book in the Pentateuch, written by God through Moses. But as we begin, let's start by looking back to Genesis, to the end of Genesis. And Genesis, we learned last year, is the record of how everything began. In the last chapter of Genesis, which is Genesis 50, we read last year, and um, you can read it if you need to go back, and you did some in your homework as well, the history of Israel and how they came to be in Egypt. But we read that Joseph, who was used by God to save his family during a severe famine in Canaan, and then Joseph was promoted to second in command to the Egyptian pharaoh, he had gathered his family together to proclaim a promise to this tribe of Hebrew herdsmen on his deathbed. Joseph said, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was, a, he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph, even with his dying breath, had complete confidence that the God of Israel, who had established a covenant with his great-grandfather Abraham, would keep his promises to his chosen nation. Through the seed of Abraham, God bestowed an inheritance that had cosmic ramifications. By God's master plan, 70 people had migrated from Canaan to Egypt to escape starvation in Joseph's day, and they settled in a region called Goshen. It was a beautiful, fertile region, and they were set apart there to care for their herds and flocks. When they left their homeland in Canaan, God had promised them that in Egypt, he would make them into a great nation and then bring them back to Canaan one day. God had design, designed Egypt, you can think of it kind of as a, um, a divine incubator for the nation of Israel. And in that incubator, they increased in number as they waited. They waited to return to Canaan. So here at the start of Exodus in chapter 1, they've been waiting for about 400 years. So next time your kids ask, Mommy, how long? Say, it's not as long as the Israelites had to wait. Their time for deliverance was approaching. Our first division on your outline is called A People Oppressed, and it covers Exodus chapter 1. So be sure to have your Bibles open to follow through. Um, follow along as I read. I'll be reading portions of scripture from the ESV version, which is what I choose to use. In the original Hebrew language, the very first word of the book of Exodus is the word and. And. A-N-D. Moses is essentially saying as he begins this book, and now, here's the rest of the story of what happened to Israel. Right away, we see Jacob's sons listed. And scripture tells us in verse 7 that the descendants of Jacob's 12 sons 
multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. Israel had so flourished in Egypt that they literally fulfilled God's command to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to be fruitful and multiply. The camp of 70 sojourners increased to well over 2 million people in the span of four centuries. If you do the numbers, it could have even been as high as 3 million. And that's amazing. But the Pharaoh who had admired and accommodated Joseph and his family was long dead. And the Pharaoh now in in charge has no regard for the nation of Israel, for the history of Joseph's people. He's threatened by their exploding numbers. He's fearing probably a potential rebellion. At first, at first we see this oppression takes the form of harsh labor conditions, which then it turns into forced servitude. As enslaved laborers, they made the mud bricks and mortar used to build storage depots that were attached to Egyptian temples in cities like Pithom and Ramses. The facilities were used to store up not food for the people, but food that was used for offerings to the Egyptian gods. Twice it says that the Egyptians treated the Hebrews ruthlessly. Well, when he couldn't kill off the Hebrews with brutal labor, Pharaoh devised another sinister plan, genocide. In our reading, we saw in verse 16 that Pharaoh commands two Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua, to kill every Hebrew baby boy at the moment of delivery. But Pharaoh has underestimated the value of Hebrew women to the survival of Israel. These two ordinary women courageously defied the most powerful ruler of the day. They let the male children live, and they claimed it was because the Hebrew women were so vigorous that they gave birth before the midwives could reach them. Well, one commentator described it this way, and I thought it was really a neat picture. Think of Pharaoh. He's on his throne, and he's wearing his gold headdress, featuring the image of Wajit, who was represented by the form of a cobra serpent. And Wajet was considered to be the protector goddess of the Nile and daughter of the sun god Ra. So scripture tells us, we we learned last year in Genesis, that Satan masqueraded as a serpent in the Garden of Eden. And Satan is the father of lies. So Shipra and Pua, standing before Pharaoh, fearlessly used Satan's weapons against him. They told a morally necessary lie to save the lives of Hebrew babies. Isn't that amazing? These ordinary women feared God more than the despot, and God dealt well with them and protected them and blessed them with families of their own. Plus, God honored them enough to direct Moses to include their names written here in the history of Israel. They are hearers of the faith. Because in an environment that was under the weight of sin and evil, they refused to bow down. They wouldn't bow down to the darkness. They refused to compromise. And that's such an important lesson for us. So Pharaoh Pharaoh takes his plan of ethnic cleansing to the next level. He commands all the Egyptians 
to cast any newborn Hebrew baby, boy, into the Nile to drown them, but they can let the female babies live. You know, can you imagine what terror pregnant women felt at the moment of delivery? You know, was their baby a boy? Was their baby a girl? And if he was a boy, was someone going to snatch him out of their arms and toss him into the Nile? It was horrible. I can only imagine that in this context, the people of Israel, they didn't feel very blessed by God, perhaps. They didn't maybe feel chosen. Perhaps they didn't feel special anymore. In their oppression and their bondage, they may have felt that God was far off. Had he forgotten his promises to them? As the days of agony stretched on, I think the hearts of the Hebrew people were surely broken. The darkness must have seemed impenetrable. They were trapped and suffering under the bondage of a very powerful force, and they could not break free by their own strength. All they could see before them was a yoke of suffering. They needed rescue. They needed a strong hand of deliverance. Our principle or application for this section, as a general rule in America, you know, our culture considers freedom as a right, don't we? It's, it's our right to be free. Often we treat that as a right to do what we want to do. And here in the land of the free and the home of the brave, those words like bondage and oppression can kind of sound antiquated to our ears. They can feel a little unrelatable. But if we're honest, we can all relate to feeling captive to a situation or a habit or a sin or a burden that consumes and overwhelm, overwhelms us. That awareness that stirs in you that something unhealthy has a hold on me. We know that the truth of scripture says that since the fall in the Garden of Eden, all of mankind has been born into this bondage of sin. Let's think about it another way. What keeps you up at night? What triggers fear and anxiousness in you? What sins or habits or patterns are you struggling with, which you know are harming your relationship with your loved ones or even your relationship with God? Whatever is holding my mind, my heart, or my spirit captive can be a form of bondage. Our hearts long for freedom. To walk as God designed us to walk, in holiness with him. The world before us, we have to remember, is not the end of the story. Here is where we need to lift up our eyes. Christ is the conquering king, and he has already defeated all of our enemies. They are his footstool. They're his, if you want to think of it, his heavenly ottoman. We live in a fully but not yet point of history, but we're in his redemptive reign, and it's at work. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 reminds us how we can live free from the fear of our present and our future, no matter what struggles you may be facing. This scripture says in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, if then you have been raised with Christ, you, that means if you belong to him, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also 
will appear with him in glory. One pastor who spoke on this verse at my church over the summer said it beautifully. He said, Jesus is unafraid about my future. He's not anxious about anything. He's not in heaven wringing his hands. He's at rest. And he invites me to join him in that rest. So I want to ask you, are you at rest in him today? Division two, we're going to go back to the plight of Israel now. The whispered promise of deliverance is hidden in the cry of a Hebrew baby. Born among enslaved people of Israel. And we are, we are about to be introduced to him. Our second division, the arrival of a deliverer, looks at Exodus chapters 2 through 6. We're about to cover a lot of ground here, so um, I've separated the section into three subpoints on your outline. Now remember, Moses is the God-inspired writer of Exodus, and in these chapters, he is recording the story, the story of how he came to lead the people of Israel out of captivity. These chapters are, in a way, his divinely inspired memoir and his, um, his own curriculum vitae to prove his credentials to this chosen nation. Point A. So at the start of chapter 2, we see how Moses was spared and set apart in preparation for his future role. Moses begins his own story by revealing that he was descended from the priestly tribe of Israel. We can see from the genealogy given in Exodus 6 and Numbers 26 that his father Amram and his mother Jochebed are both descendants. They're both descendants of Jacob's son Levi, the priestly tribe. In God's appointed time, this baby boy was delivered in obscurity to this particular Hebrew couple. Acts 7, which you read in some of your homework, tells us that baby Moses was beautiful in God's sight. And his brave parents kept him in hiding for three months because of Pharaoh's edict of death over the Hebrew baby boys. So Jacobet's divinely inspired plan to cast Moses upon the waters in a pitch-covered basket to be found by Pharaoh's daughter as she bathed in the Nile ensured that this brave mother would receive her little boy back in a way a resurrection for the child. With Moses' big sister Miriam as a go-between, Jochebed was actually enlisted to nurse the baby until he was weaned. And then they were to bring him back to Pharaoh's daughter to be adopted by her and raised as royalty in the palace. I can imagine that as he grew into a toddler with his birth parents, he was still being weaned, Moses heard the stories of the patriarchs and the promises that they carried with them when they came from Canaan to Egypt as sojourners. I think that his family of origin and the Spirit of God imprinted Moses with knowledge of his Hebrew identity before he ever went to live in Pharaoh's palace. Moses then is educated within, think about it, the most advanced culture of the day. He's brought up as a prince of Egypt with every privilege and opportunity it afforded. And Acts 7.22 tells us Moses the man was mighty in his words and deeds. But Moses, he did live in a vacuum. As part of Pharaoh's household, he had to have seen and been painfully aware of who was doing all the work in Egypt 
all the work that was making Pharaoh more powerful and more wealthy. When he was 40 years old, Moses was led to visit the people of Israel, his kinsmen, and he witnessed one of his kinsmen being mistreated by an Egyptian. In defending the Israelite, he killed the Egyptian, and he buried him in the sand. But rather than seeing Moses as their defender, the Israelites who were aware of the incident rejected him by saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? His loyalties had been revealed, so Pharaoh now counted Moses as his enemy, and he sought to kill him. Moses fled to a place called Midian, where he was embraced by Jethro, the priest of Midian, and brought into his household. You learn that Moses marries Jethro's daughter Zipporah. He has a child, and he spends his days as a shepherd living in obscurity, and he's set apart for an appointed time. The end of chapter 2 tells us, During these days, during these many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Don't miss that. This pause of Moses' journey to deliver Israel is completely under God's care and oversight. One Pharaoh has died, true, but another, just as cruel, has taken over his throne. God hears the suffering of his people. His promises to his people are not forgotten. Like, it's kind of like the tumblers on a combination lock. The dial is being turned, the gears are lining up, and the door to, uh, to Israel's deliverance is about to spring open. But it's all according to God's timing. Moses' supernatural call is about to be revealed. So point B covers chapter 3. Moses relates how he received his call from God in the midst of a burning bush as God reveals himself. So think about how jarring this must have been for Moses. This exiled shepherd has been living a very simple, very quiet, very anonymous life of obscurity for 40 years in Midian. And to witness a flaming bush that's not consumed by the fire, and to hear the Lord, an angel of the Lord, call his name must have been shocking. You know, fire is often a sign of God's holy presence in the Old Testament, so we can understand the fire surrounding the bush, the significance of that, but who is this angel of the Lord? This, in this picture, is the incarnate Christ who's making himself known to Moses. It's the same incarnate Jesus who appeared to Hagar in the desert, who spoke to Abraham as he lifted the knife over Isaac, and who wrestled with Jacob at Penuel. During this magnificent encounter on holy ground, God reveals himself as the great I Am, and he reminds Moses that he is a descendant of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. In verse 7, the Lord reveals why he's appearing in the midst of the burning bush in front of this very surprised shepherd. He says, it, or scripture says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, 
and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. At last, Moses probably thinks God's going to come to the aid of Israel. His heart was surely swelling with joy, with relief, and with wonder. And that is until he heard the rest of what God was going to say. Because God told him, come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Panic. I mean, Moses stutters, but, you know, but, he probably was breathless, but he says eventually, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? The fearful objections quickly rise to the surface for Moses. You know, we can relate to what Moses must have been feeling, can't we? I mean, this seems like a pretty big ask. Moses knew that he was just an ordinary guy. But here's the secret. God knew that too. But God is going to teach Moses that this mission is not about him. It's about God and his plans, his purposes, his promises. So when doubt-filled Moses continues to seek assurances in his meeting with God at the burning bush, he wants to know what he's supposed to tell the people of Israel when they ask on whose authority that he's been sent to them. In verse 14, God replies, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. You know, at the burning bush, God doesn't spend time building Moses up or trying to help him see his spiritual gift um, report. He, he's not trying to make Moses feel better about himself. God does not give Moses a TED talk on self-esteem. The God of the universe instead turns the conversation back to himself. I am is more than enough. God is making it crystal clear to his servant Moses that he is not another run-of-the-mill Egyptian little G-God that was so common in that culture. He is the unchangeable, preeminent, self-sufficient, one and only. He has and will continue to outlive every impotent pharaoh, every fickle deity. Seeing God as he truly is in the fullness of his character and might is foundational for each of us to understand our own identity. I believe that's why you're in this room. If you belong to Jesus, your worth, your value, your significance is not measured by any gifts of grace God has endowed you with, but rather your identity finds its fullness as a child of God, as his adopted daughters. Adopted daughters of the one true king of the universe. If you belong to him, you have been called, redeemed, and restored by Jesus Christ himself. If you belong to him, Galatians 2.20 assures us that we share in his identity, as if we too were crucified with him. I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. 
So point C, finally in chapters four through six, we witness how Moses is empowered and prepared by God to face Pharaoh and to usher Israel to freedom. Well, you saw as you studied chapter four, how God graciously gave Moses several tangible proofs of his ordained leadership. It was the staff that turns into a snake and then reverts back the leprous hand that is healed within his cloak, the water from the Nile that's transformed into blood when it's poured on dry ground. But even those miracles and signs can't take away Moses' insecurities. He's still feeling a little nervous about his lack of eloquence. But God has an answer to that too. In 412, God assures Moses that as his creator, he will also fill the mouth that he made with what he needs to speak to the people. The maker of his tongue and his vocal cords can certainly ordain his speech. Further reluctance from Moses finally raises a little anger in the Lord and he offers Moses' older brother Aaron as his spokesperson. In fact, God has already compelled Aaron to come to find Moses and he's on the way. Again, we see the perfection of God's timing. At this point in our story, Moses finally accepts his call from the great I am, and he returns to Midian to gather his family, his wife and his two sons at this point. He receives the blessing of his father-in-law, Jethro, and he packs up his two sons and his wife, Zipporah, onto a donkey. He picks up his staff, and he's on his way. And the Lord continues to dialogue with Moses on his journey back to Egypt. We see in, in 421, God gives Moses another command for Pharaoh. When he confronts Moses, excuse me, when he confronts Pharaoh, Moses is supposed to tell him that Israel is like the firstborn son to God. And if Pharaoh refuses to release God's firstborn son, then God will kill the firstborn son of Pharaoh. Now, as you read on in chapter 4, you probably noticed a kind of confusing side story in verses 24 through 26, and I didn't want to gloss over it. God has called Moses to a place of obedience as his chosen servant, and yet apparently Moses has neglected to circumcise one of his sons, I'm thinking the younger one, and God is angry enough to put Moses to death over it, perhaps through a severe illness. You're kind of thinking, wow, Moses, you're in trouble. The Midianite culture, which his wife belonged to, didn't adhere to circumcision, apparently. So maybe Moses was trying not to offend his um, Midianite family, his father-in-law and his wife and their family. Um, and so he skipped over circumcising this boy. Yet, Moses is fully aware of the covenant of circumcision that God made with Abraham. You know, you can read that about that in, in, back in Genesis 17. However, his wife Zipporah gets the picture. And though it's repugnant to her, she takes up a flint and she performs the operation on her child herself because Moses is apparently unable to do it. To spare her husband's life, she wounds her child and lays the bloody fat flesh at Moses' feet. Some translations say she flings the flesh at his feet. So what are we supposed to do with this kind of odd story, this incident? Well, 
Moses is about to deliver Israel, to teach them all the ways of God, to lead them in holiness and to train them in all of God's statutes. So he must lead by an example, as an example in all things. That's why I think God compels Moses to share this event in Scripture. I can imagine that this was a very humbling lesson for Moses, but it was important for his preparation as the leader of Israel. And there's a truth for us within this strange episode. You know, partial obedience is still disobedience in the sight of God. God wants all of our devotion, not just a piece of it, not just a portion. So anytime you come to a puzzling event like this in Scripture, uh, you know, don't gloss over it. I want to encourage you to dig in because there's always a lesson to be found in God's Word. And God's Word is big enough to handle our scrutiny. Back to Exodus. In Exodus 4.27, we see that after being summoned by God, Aaron comes to meet up with Moses in the desert. And the brothers are reunited at Horeb, the mountain of God. And that's the same place that Moses heard his call at the burning bush. This will be an important place in the history of Israel. Moses fills Aaron in on their assignment. And together they appear before the elders of Israel once they reach Egypt. How did the enslaved Israelites react to this message from God? 431 says, And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. They were not forgotten. God knew, God saw, and God had come down. Chapter 5 focuses on the increasing misery of the Israelites as Pharaoh responds very badly to Moses and Aaron's demands from God to let his people go. Instead, their work is made more difficult, and they are beaten by their taskmasters, and the Israelites are ready to revolt against Moses and his leadership because it looks like he's just making their lives even more miserable. But chapter 6 reveals that this pressure cooker that's happening is all part of God's design to push Pharaoh to the breaking point so that he will eventually drive the people out of Egypt for his own relief. In verse 2, God reiterates the promise of deliverance to further prepare Moses for the fight ahead. Scripture says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." These verses point out that Abraham and the patriarchs did know God, but it was more in a limited measure. Yet they had the very steady, committed faith to follow him. But now Israel will know and experience God in a broader 
deeper sense that even the patriarchs, a deeper sense that even they had known him. They will know him by Yahweh, by his glory and his majesty. And they will see him more fully in the midst of their redemption as they're delivered through his magnificent power. Woven through today's lessons are beautiful glimpses of Jesus. Did you see them? Did you notice? Let's look at the beautiful typologies now. Just going to kind of run through these. First, by his genealogy, Moses qualifies as a priest of Israel. Jesus Christ is our high priest. At birth, remember Moses' life was in danger because of an evil king in the same way. In the same way, Jesus' parents had to flee their home and keep the infant Jesus safe from Herod's murderous grasp. In his adopted upbringing in the palace, Moses was raised as royalty until his adulthood. Yet he chose to identify with his oppressed Hebrew brothers. Likewise, Jesus left his rightful throne in heaven to empty himself and to live a life of hardship as a brother among his disciples. Like Moses, Christ too was rejected by the very people he came to lead out of slavery to sin and death. During his 40 years in Midian, Moses fulfills the duties of a shepherd to his father-in-law Jethro. Christ will one day appear as the good shepherd to his people. Moses is called to be Israel's intercessor before Pharaoh, repeatedly pleading their case as their representative. We have the assurance that Jesus Christ is our intercessor and advocate before the throne of God and against the attacks of our enemies. God calls Israel his firstborn son in Exodus 4.22, pointing to the day when the divine firstborn son will be delivered out of the tribe of Judah. Through Moses, God promises to fulfill his covenant to deliver Israel out of slavery and to redeem them and bring them into the promised land. Through Jesus Christ, God gave us the ultimate deliverer, our redeemer, who rescues those he calls and grants them eternal life in his presence. Moses was only a foreshadowing of the ultimate redeemer for humanity. You know, in his fears and reject and his um, objections before God, Moses revealed the reality of the situation. He knew he was just a limited, fallible human being. Moses instinctively knew that someone greater than himself was needed. Our promise here is this, our principle. Christ's righteous perfection uniquely qualified him to fulfill his destiny as our true deliverer to redeem his people from the curse of sin and death. What about you? Have you come to Christ your deliverer to be set apart, to be enlightened by his spirit and equipped to follow the call of God? Or are you still living a life that's as a slave to the law? You're determined to just work your way to salvation and to cure your own sin sickness. There is no other cure for our sin. There's no plan B for our redemption, for our deliverance from oppression. And that's our main lesson for today. 
God's promise to set us free from the bondage of sin and darkness and death has been completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who reveals the full character of the one true God. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. Let me close our time in prayer. Dear Saba, we stand in awe of the truths we've explored this morning, humbled and overwhelmed that in the same way you raised up Moses as a deliverer for Israel, you raised up and offered your only son as the deliverer of our souls. What love you have lavished upon us that you would pursue us in love to redeem us as your cherished possession, that you would call us to be your daughters. Though we will experience days of struggle and hardship in this life, you have proved again and again and again in the pages of Scripture that you see our afflictions, you hear our cries for rescue, you know our desperate need for deliverance, and you have come down to rescue us because of your inescapable love. Only life in you brings true freedom. May that truth overwhelm us this day. May it transform us in new ways. It's in the beautiful and life-giving name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.